we continue with Part 3, Section B of the Opinion. B. Functional Policy Considerations Even though it is proper under Marbury and its progeny for an Article Three court to hear criminal charges brought against a former president, we necessarily must weigh concerns of public policy, especially as illuminated by our history and the structure of our government, including our constitutional heritage and structure. This inquiry involves policies and principles that may be considered implicit in the nature of the president's office in a system structured to achieve effective government under constitutionally mandated separation of powers. Our analysis entails balancing the constitutional weight of the interest to be served against the dangers of intrusion on the authority and functions of the executive branch. We note at the outset that our analysis is specific to the case before us, in which a former president has been indicted on federal criminal charges arising from his alleged conspiracy to overturn federal election results and unlawfully overstay his presidential term. We consider the policy concerns at issue in this case in two respects. First, we assess possible intrusions on the authority and functions of the executive branch and the countervailing interests to be served as those concerns apply to former President Trump's claim that former presidents are categorically immune from federal prosecution. We conclude that the interest in criminal accountability held by both the public and the executive branch outweighs the potential risks of chilling presidential action and permitting vexatious litigation. Second, we examine the additional interests raised by the nature of the charges in the indictment. The executive branch's interest in upholding presidential elections and vesting power in a new president under the Constitution, and the voters' interest in democratically selecting their president. We find these interests compel the conclusion that former President Trump is not immune from prosecution under the indictment. 1. Categorical Immunity Defense Former President Trump argues that criminal liability for former presidents risks chilling presidential action while in office and opening the floodgates to meritless and harassing prosecution. These risks do not overcome the public interest in fair and accurate judicial proceedings, which is at its height in the criminal setting. Former President Trump first asserts that the prospect of potential post-presidency criminal liability would inhibit a sitting president's ability to act fearlessly and impartially, citing the especially sensitive duties of the president and the need for bold and unhesitating action. But the chance that now and then there may be found some timid soul who will take counsel of his fears and give way to their repressive power is too remote and shadowy to shape the course of justice. In Clark v. United States, 1933, the Supreme Court dismissed the threat of a chilling effect, holding that jurors could be subject to criminal prosecution for conduct during their jury service, 
and explaining that a juror of integrity and reasonable firmness will not fear to speak his mind if the confidences of debate are barred to the ears of mere impertinence or malice. Rather, the court observed, he will not expect to be shielded against the disclosure of his conduct in the event that there is evidence reflecting upon his honor. The court reinforced the point in United States v. Nixon, holding that it could not conclude that presidential advisers will be moved to temper the candor of their remarks by the infrequent occasions of disclosure because of the possibility that such conversations will be called for in the context of a criminal prosecution. So too here. We cannot presume that a president will be unduly cowed by the prospect of post-presidency criminal liability any more than a juror would be influenced by the prospect of post-deliberation criminal liability or an executive aide would be quieted by the prospect of the disclosure of communications in a criminal prosecution. Moreover, past presidents have understood themselves to be subject to impeachment and criminal liability, at least under certain circumstances, so the possibility of chilling executive action is already in effect. Even former President Trump concedes that criminal prosecution of a former president is expressly authorized by the Impeachment Judgment Clause after impeachment and conviction. We presume that every president is aware of the Impeachment Judgment Clause and knows that he is liable and subject to indictment, trial, judgment, and punishment according to law, at least after impeachment and conviction. Additionally, recent historical evidence suggests that former presidents, including President Trump, have not believed themselves to be wholly immune from criminal liability for official acts during their presidency. President Gerald Ford issued a full pardon to former President Richard Nixon, which both former presidents evidently believed was necessary to avoid Nixon's post-resignation indictment. Before leaving office, President Bill Clinton agreed to a five-year suspension of his law license and a $25,000 fine in exchange for independent counsel Robert Ray's agreement not to file criminal charges against him. And during President Trump's 2021 impeachment proceedings for incitement of insurrection, his counsel argued that instead of post-presidency impeachment, the appropriate vehicle for investigation, prosecution, and punishment is the Article Three courts, as we have a judicial process and an investigative process to which no former officeholder is immune. In light of the express mention of indictment in the Impeachment Judgment Clause, and recent historical evidence of former presidents acting on the apparent understanding that they are subject to prosecution, even in the absence of conviction by the Senate, the risk of criminal liability chilling presidential action appears to be low. Instead of inhibiting the president's lawful discretionary action, the prospect of federal criminal liability might serve as a structural benefit to deter possible abuses of power 
and criminal behavior. Where an official could be expected to know that certain conduct would violate statutory or constitutional rights, he should be made to hesitate. As the district court observed, every president will face difficult decisions. Whether to intentionally commit a federal crime should not be one of them. Former President Trump next urges that a lack of criminal immunity will subject future presidents to politically motivated prosecutions as soon as they leave office. In the civil context, the Supreme Court found Official Act presidential immunity necessary in part to avoid subjecting the president to trial on virtually every allegation that an action was unlawful or was taken for a forbidden purpose. But the decision to initiate a federal prosecution is committed to the prosecutorial discretion of the executive branch. Prosecutors have ethical obligations not to initiate unfounded prosecutions, and courts presume that they properly discharge their official duties. There are additional safeguards in place to prevent baseless indictments, including the right to be charged by a grand jury upon a finding of probable cause. Grand juries are prohibited from engaging in arbitrary fishing expeditions. And initiating investigations out of malice or an intent to harass. Additionally, former President Trump's predictive judgment of a torrent of politically motivated prosecutions finds little support in either history or the relatively narrow compass of the issues raised in this particular case, as former President Trump acknowledges that this is the first time since the founding. That a former president has been federally indicted. Weighing these factors, we conclude that the risk that former presidents will be unduly harassed by meritless federal criminal prosecutions appears slight. On the other side of the scale, we must consider the constitutional weight of the interest to be served by allowing the prosecution of a former president to proceed. The public has a fundamental interest in the enforcement of criminal laws. Our historic commitment to the rule of law is nowhere more profoundly manifest than in our view that the twofold aim of criminal justice is that guilt shall not escape or innocence suffer. As the Nixon court explained. Wholly immunizing the president from the criminal justice process would disturb the primary constitutional duty of the judicial branch to do justice in criminal prosecutions to such an extent that it would undermine the separation of powers by plainly conflicting with the function of the courts under Article Three. There is also a profound Article Two interest in the enforcement of federal criminal laws. The president has a constitutionally mandated duty to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. As part of this duty, the president is responsible for investigating and prosecuting criminal violations. Beyond simply making explicit that a president must enforce the law, the "take care" clause plays a central role in signifying the principle that ours is a government of laws. Not of men, 
and that we submit ourselves to rulers only if under rules. It would be a striking paradox if the president, who alone is vested with the constitutional duty to take care that the laws be faithfully executed, were the sole officer capable of defying those laws with impunity. The federal prosecution of a former president fits the case when judicial action is needed to serve broad public interests in order to vindicate the public interest in an ongoing criminal prosecution. The risks of chilling presidential action or permitting meritless, harassing prosecutions are unlikely, unsupported by history, and too remote and shadowy to shape the course of justice. We therefore conclude that functional policy considerations rooted in the structure of our government do not immunize former presidents from federal criminal prosecution. We've come to the end of this part of the opinion. But don't worry, next episode we will pick up right where we left off, beginning with Part 3, Section B, 2. Until then, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.